Welcome to the Science of Fiction. I'm Andrew Holding, and today I am joined by Will. Hello, how's it going? It's good, thanks. And we're, as promised, going to start you off with some bit tunes. <laughs> Hello, and this is The Science of Fiction. That was Over Arrow by Anna Managuchi, I believe. That's right. Well, got that and I've been practicing all day. So, Will, would you want to just explain why you picked that song? Um, well, it's slightly tenuously related to science and fiction or computers and fiction. Um, Anna Managuchi are just this really good chiptunes band. Well, I think they're great. Um, but re recently they composed the soundtrack to the video game to go with uh, these Scott Pilgrim vs. the World film, which was um, basically is set in a world where the characters are basically living in a video game. So they'll be one minute hanging out, you know, drinking coffee or whatever, and the next minute they have a boss battle. So, um, yeah, it's kind of... It, it was a weird take, and it kind of polarised people. A lot of people thought it, was, thought it was great and kind of is the, the idol for a generation, and a lot of people really hated it. Uh, it's... Yeah, I mean, I have yet to get a chance to see it, but I do remember seeing the trailers, and the, the whole boss battle thing is 
Well, one, it's sort of a thing that's now kind of lost in computer games. It's only something that only appears in the smaller computer games out there. But also, it's very, very weird to see it in a movie. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but, but it kind of fits in with the... Because it's actually... The, the game is based on the movie, is based on some comics. Um, and it kind of... It feels more at home in a comic because they're, 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 it's more in line with what people expect in comics compared to in uh, live-action. Yeah, I mean, of course, we had our show with Ben Valsler a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about how comics allow you to do many things that you can't actually do in movies so easily because the way that comics are done means that all the action actually happens between the frames rather than actually happening on set as it were so you don't see what's going on you use your imagination that's a good point and the one of the interesting things about the adapting the comics to a film was that there's quite a lot of bands in the film in in, in the comics who play songs and Occasionally he puts chords in the, in, in the comic strip and some lyrics, but normally you have to just imagine what these bands sound like. But when they had adapted it to a film, of course you have to have real bands playing um, on set. Um, so they, they got Broken Social Scene and Beck and various other um, like relatively well-known artists to kind of rebrand themselves as uh, bands in this fictional universe. So uh, fictional bands but made up from real bands. Exactly. In a fictional universe. Exactly, where people are in a video game and fight each other. Well, certainly a movie to check out if you're a video game fan, but maybe something that will blow your mind if you're not. Pretty much, yeah. One other thing we, well, that song is also quite important to bring up is the fact it's, uh, well, I call it a bit tune, they're also quite more often called chip tunes. Uh, and these are things sort of 8-bit retro music based on computer games. Right, so there are a lot of bands who, um, they, they start with a Game Boy or a SNES or some kind of old retro console, and they hack it um, so that they can control the music it's playing. Um, and then they produce all their music, or some of their music, in Annie Managuchi's case, uh, on these really old consoles. Um, and so it's kind of the, it's the, it's the sound of these lost games, which have kind of made a resurgence with Xbox Arcade and so on. I mean, I think what's also quite cool about it is that they'll rig up the Game Boy so you can play it live. So it's not like they, they're just sampling. They are actually playing on the Game Boy the music by hitting the buttons to get a live sound out. Yeah, which is, which is nice because electronic music often suffers from um, not being very visually interesting on a stage. You've got, like, normally some dude with a lot of hair and a beard who stares at his laptop and you know, presses play occasionally and makes some noises, but there's not really much to see, whereas there are these bands who have got, you know, some live instruments and then they've got, you know, game controllers, which they can... Yeah, you can be quite dramatic with them, just like you can with a guitar, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's, it, that bit's obviously down to the showmanship of the um, artist rather than the actual... Um, instrument itself and I think there is something quite nostalgic about someone bringing up a game console from my youth because I mean Game Boys probably first came out when I was six seven yeah it's, it's been they've been around for at least 20 years they're pretty old now yeah I, I and sadly mine was stolen by my parents-in-law well, how, what? Your parents-in-law stole your Game Boy? That seems like a story to be told in some kind of agony art TV show well my mother-in-law uh, was quite a fan of Tetris okay well that I can understand. That which is probably a game that I think it's just appealed to probably the widest number of people ever. And it's made a, a like old Russian folk song probably the, like one of the most recognisable tunes ever. Which we don't actually have today. Alas, not. Maybe maybe that's something for next time. That'll be for next week. So, shoot. Anything more you want to tell us about the song? Or? Um, I think, I think that, pr that pretty much covers it. Maybe we should uh, move on to some more, some less tenuously related to movies uh, songs. Yeah, well, before we do that, we'll just remind you, you can um, send in a message to at Think Outreach on Twitter or through our face Facebook page or the Facebook event page. Also, if you're listening on the live player, just type it in there and uh, hit send and it comes straight into the studio. Uh, on the live player, of course, you can also see the webcam. So that's just behind us. 
if you send something we might try and interact with you that way uh, so yeah here's our next track and enjoy it Your station, 97.2, your Cam FM. Hello and welcome back. That was Sacrifice by Clint Mansell, and um, that's from a movie which I hope you've all seen, which is Moon. Yeah, Moon was, uh, I think it was made in about 2008. Um, it's a film set on the moon, which should be pretty obvious from the title, I uh, guess. Um, but it's only really got two characters. There's this guy, Sam Bell, who works on a moon base... And there's a computer called Gertie, who's the, vo- the voice of Kevin Spacey, and has a screen which shows just smiley faces. And that's pretty much the whole, you know, the, the, the entire set of characters for the film. Um, but it's a great example of, of the, the, the kind of sub-genre of um, films where there's a 
a very prominent computer or robot character that's quite morally ambiguous. And I also think it's a great example of um, a brilliant piece of voice acting for a computer because, I mean, I love Kevin Spacey, so I suppose he could probably do no wrong in my book. But he, the way it sort of gets from this computer which has no emotion but still somehow conveying it, it's, really, it's, a, really, it's a really hard bit of acting, I think, is it, to get emotion across, but you have to use different methods to do it. As you say, the smiley faces do some of it, but there's also something about his voice, and he delivers it really well. Yeah, he manages to keep his voice kind of kind of flat and robotic, but also manages to get some amount of uh, um, like emo- emotion into it from his pacing. I, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I mean, I'm really, really keen on Kevin Spacey. Any film that has him playing a kind of creepy character, absolutely great with me. Um, but... Kind of related to um, Moon, uh, the director Duncan Jones, who I found out while researching this, he's actually David Bowie's son, uh, which who I thought was called Zowie Bowie, but apparently his real name is Duncan Jones. Did he change it? Um, he was born Duncan Jones, and he was called Zowie Bowie and various other crazy things uh, for his first like fifteen years of his life, and now he has a more conventional name. But he um, this year, uh, well, it was released this year, it was uh, Source Code, directed by him, um, which it's kind of funny because. It's got this title, which is obviously very much about computer programming, but it has nothing at all to do with computer programming, and there's no source code featured at any point in this film. So it's, aside from that, it's a really great film, but um, there's this kind of strange like trend for films to name-drop random computery words for no apparent reason. I'm not really sure why. It, I mean, in source code, what is the... Is there any point in the movie you understand why he name-dropped the phrase source, uh, source code? Um, it's to do with... so. I don't think it's giving away much of the film to say that you know s- source code is the kind of the, the gimmick that's used to um, relive the moments of someone's death, um, and so it's kind of source code, brain map. It's kind of a tenuous link, I guess. But they could have used almost any other magic word to mean the brain map of someone who just died, and it would have made just as much sense. We were also discussing this earlier that it's amazing how often in fiction they'll use the concept of brain maps or being able to interact with brains, which is something which we just can't do and if there's any part of science that really hasn't made massive steps forward is understanding the brain or well it has made massive steps forward but nothing which the public would probably perceive as being particularly interesting right there's loads of fiction which deals with uh, uploading people's like brain states into computers and running simulations of people and people living on the internet basically and being beamed into space it's and it's weird because all these all these works treat it as basically read that at some point in the future we'll be able to back up our mental state. But there's, it's completely outside the realms of, as far as I know, maybe someone can, can write in if they know differently, but it's outside the realms of any science we have now. Yeah, I mean, scientists will often hold that we're just machines. Um, well, we're, yeah, we are just machines. It, you get a bit more philosophical about, philosophical about that. But that doesn't mean that you can transfer the consciousness. You can make a copy of a machine but that doesn't go as far to say that you can beam a personality from one body to another, because the actual structure of the brain is what makes that machine work. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a thought experiment, which I can't remember the name of, which is terrible research on my part, where um, the, th- the idea is if you replace the neurons in a brain one by one with a computer component that simulated that neuron exactly, um, by the end of it, you'd have no human brain left. You'll, it'd all just be this, these computer parts simulating how the brain worked before, and yet, it would probably be um, functionally identical to the, to the person. But while so, like, it makes sense in some kind of principle. So what, so what we're saying here is, say you have someone who had Alzheimer's, and every time a neuron dies, you then replace it with a, a computer ver- chip. 
uh, one by one, the person would never lose the functionality they had. And but what you'd end up with is a person who is completely machine. Well, yeah, their, their, their brain and their consciousness is completely machine. And this yeah, it has all kinds of crazy philosophical philosophical implications. Have you died when this happens? How does this impact on you know, religion's uh, takes on the, the soul? Um, happily, this is all hugely theoretical and not practical at all. And I don't think it's going to be, I don't see any way this is going to happen in our lifetimes. But the way you can take that whole thought experiment one step further and instead of saying that you do it stepwise as the neurons die what happens if you have to destroy the brain first and then you rebuild it a week later and that to most people is a clear-cut example of death and then just a copy um but that's r really hard because actually when you try and find a line between the two it is just this problem with our how we perceive what we are and we like a continuity of our life we that's how we cope with understanding what life is normally and the, the even more difficult example to cope with is what happens if I make the copy before I destroy the original and then you have a duplicate system and that's something which is picked up by Peter of Hamilton lost in his books that he talks about being able to copy people but they will not have at no point do they ever have duplicates of people because it just they're not happy with it the psychology of people is they can't cope with it even though they talk about after someone's died and rebuilding them from stored memories and being able to bring them back if they bring the person back before the other person's dead that is just a social taboo uh, I think it's a really interesting thing and it, it's a huge amount of philosophy on this and yeah we don't actually have an answer yet a lot of sci-fi is quite happy to play with this theme yeah well, it's, I mean it's definitely interesting it's very it's very fertile ground for for um, for guess guesswork and fantasy, um, and obviously it crops up in time travel as well. If you travel back by a year, then there's two of you living at the same time. Uh, again, fortunately, time travel is not a thing people can do, so that's okay. Uh, and another thing we um, got down here is that apparently there's a Blade Runner inspired follow-up to Moon coming out, and Blade Runner, of course, is a great cover great movie for covering this idea of artificial life, the idea of a synthetic human, and that's something. I actually really want to talk about a set of size screen in town, but there's a. I think the IMAX have the rights for the size for Blade Runner for the next six months, so we couldn't do it. But artificial life is a really interesting concept. If you start making the building blocks for life, and then you make a creature, is it any different from the real thing? And in Blade Runner, there are arguments why it is, but in the books, Do Androids Drink Dream of Electric Sleep by Philip K. Dick, the line is a lot harder to draw. And they are looking at much more subtle effects. And the book, if you if you enjoy the movie, go read the book. It's completely bizarre. Uh, Philip K. Dick was a very strange author, but it, there's a lot more sort of elements of religion and a lot more confusion about who is and who isn't a replicated person. So at that point, I think it's a good time to move on to the next track. Get your most closely kept personal thought Put it in the word block With the password lock Sock it deep in the raw With extraction precluded By the ludicrous length And the strength of a reputed dictionary attack Proof string of characters This imperative to thwart All the disparages of privacy The NSA and homelessness You better PGP the raw Because so far they ain't impressed You better take the PGP And print the hex of it out Scan that into a tiff Then if you secret doubt for your data, scramble up the order of the pixels with a one-time pad that describes 
the fun time had about the thick old boot wearing stomper who danced to produce random clap trap all the intervals in between which set in tandem with the stomps themselves begat a seed of math unguessable ain't no complaint about the cipher that's redressable best of all your secret nothing extant could extract it by 2025 the children speak and spell could crack it you can't hide secrets from the future with math you can try but I bet that in the future they laugh at the half-fast schemes and People do not give a damn about your shopping Your visa number SSL to cherry popping Hot ramp for action Websites that you visit Nor password protected partitions No matter how illicit And this it would seem is your saving grace Think amazing haste to people to forget Your name, your face You're lit in this list of indefensible indiscretions In fact, the only way that you could pray To make impression on the era ahead Is if instead of being notable You make the data describing you undecodable for script Kiddies sitting in that relic called the internet Seeking latches on treasure chests that they could wreck in seconds But didn't yet get a chance to queue up for this assembly To discover and crack the cover like a creme brulee They'll glance you over, I guess And then for a bare moment you'll persist to exist Almost seem like you're there, don't it? But you're not, you're here, your name will fade as fronts will That's in the future, they don't know what crypto variable still You can't hide secrets from the future with math You can try, but I bet that in the future they laugh Cryptographs in the past. Now it's an enigma machine. A code yelled out at Hot Bong and threw a tin can with a thin string. And that ain't all you do. To broadcast clear text of your intention, send an email to the government pledging your abstention from vote fraud this time. Next time, can't promise you don't get a visit from the Department of Piranhas. Be honest, you ain't hacking those. It'd be too easy setting up the next president, pretending that you were through freezing when you're nothing but warming up to do list in your diary. Better keep for a long time, and the long time better be tiring to the distribution of electrical brains that are guessing every unsalted hash that ever came. They got aliens. Technology to make the rainbow tables with Then in an afternoon a glance and have them secrets Don't resist the loving coats of the mathematical calculation Heart of your mystery sent free fall into palpitation Computron will rise up in the dawn A free agent, nobody knows the future Now go find out, be patient camfm.co.uk Your station, your camfm. 
and welcome back to the science of fiction hope you enjoyed that last song that was secrets from the future by mc frontalot and we actually just had a message in on the facebook whilst we were playing the track of someone asking what is the most gratuitous use of hey zoom in and zoom in on that part bit in a movie um I thought we had to bring this up now because we just talked about Blade Runner, which I think was the first ever movie to really make that into a joke, where he zooms in on a mirror, and as he pans the camera across, the mirror actually um, changes angle. Right, yeah. And in Blade Runner, the game, which uh, was apparently a breakthrough game at the time, but I found it really boring, um, that was a really big gameplay element. You had these photographs, and you had to zoom in on stuff, and you, you would zoom in on something, and the camera would just go around a corner and show you something else entirely. Uh, yeah, Pete Gibbons said, um, did an enemy of the state have a part where he zoomed into the contents of Will Smith's bag? But, yep, that sounds pretty familiar. I, I seem to remember that was meant to be their computer modelled it, then turned it round and saw the back of it to work out it was distorted because someone had put it in it. But computer modelling can't do that unless it could see a stress on the front, in which case you probably wouldn't use a computer to do that. You would use an expert who can say that bag looks like someone spung something into it. Hey, but at least it had, an, it had some kind of vaguely plausible explanation. Yeah, I mean... That R- is- rather than zoom enhance... Um, oh look, you can see you can see a reflection that wasn't there before. I mean, one of my, I don't know, probably things I shouldn't admit to is I watched um, NCIS Los Angeles, and I love it because it's just so utterly cheesy. But I think there's probably not a week that goes by where they don't do a zoom in on someone in some totally ridiculous manner and be able to pull out resolution, unless the plot needs them not to be able to work out who it is for another half an hour. There's a great video on YouTube somewhere, which, which we'll uh, post a link to on Facebook later, where someone's just cut together a ton of zoom-enhanced sequences from all kinds of films and TV shows. It's, it's pretty funny. And, of course, the other one is um, Red Dwarf's Back, Back to Earth, where they just took the mick out of... Um, it was Blade Runner, I think, again, because there's a lot of Blade Runner in that. And they sort of used reflection off a window, off the H and Rimmer's head, off another car window, then back around the corner or something. And, yeah, they... they just slapstick it completely it's probably one of the only funny bits in the entirety of that and I was very disappointed with the whole of Back to Earth it's a shame because it has such great potential I didn't dare to watch it for exactly that reason uh, you didn't miss much anyway so that last song we played The Secrets from the Future uh, well basically we played it because it was one of the only songs you could find about computer science I understand yeah well there's, there's, there's like a whole subgenre of like well, there, there are the nerd, there's nerd rock and so on. That was um, MC Frontalot basically invented nerdcore hip hop, and as far as I can tell, he's pretty much the only competent nerdcore uh, rapper out there. Um, but yeah, it's actually a song kind of about computer science. Well, cryptography is basically maths, but it's close enough. And also, I promised you nerdcore, so there was some nerdcore. That was a promised nerdcore. Um, but there's a kind of serious point to it because. Um, what, he, what, he, what he's talking about is that um, you can encrypt stuff all you like right now, but it's naive to assume that any encryption that we use now will survive 50 years, 100 years in the future. Um, but mean, meanwhile, in films, breaking encryption and stuff is kind of just seen as a, a matter of, you know, someone mashing at a keyboard for a few hours. Um, and in reality, it doesn't, you know, that's not what happens at all. Um, either there's social factors, like someone's used a really obvious password, or it's you know mathematical breakthroughs that take years there's very little sort of halfway house there's a great scene in house recently where one of the characters chase gets his password stolen and they go well the person who stole your password must have some technical skills and the comment back is not really my password was password and that is genuinely i think how most people's a lot of people's accounts are hacked the other one of course is key loggers which just log what you're typing in the computer there was a, occasionally a big social network has a massive like password leak like twitter had one a few years ago myspace had one and there's actually really interesting data for um security researchers to study and see 
quite how bad people's real passwords actually are. One, two, three, four, five is quite common. Among many, many others. QWERTY is the other one because it's lying across the keyboard and often the name of the website. Yeah, that one's kind of foolish. Well, that means they have a different password on every site, I guess. I guess so. That's at least better than everything being QWERTY. So, listeners, what are your favourite examples of um, like ridiculous like, hacking scenes in films? Also, what's your, what's your username, password, and uh, site? And just send those in as well. Oh, date of birth, mother's maiden name. Yeah. We, we'll use them just for science. For science, you monsters. Um, and, um, yeah, we're sort of going on the encryption thing, of course. We're talking about mass moving forward. It brings us on to uh, Enigma. Um, the Enigma machine, I hope most of you have come across, is a machine that's used in World War II by the Germans to encrypt everything. And that was an example of, I think, it's where the modern computer age came from, almost, with Turing and his work, and he eventually went on to build the bomb which was not explosive at all. It was a program, first programmable machine? Yeah, a bomb with an E. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, I think it's probably safe to say that the Second World War like, drove a lot of technology that we use, take for granted today, but in particular, computer technology would not be where it is now had, had there not been this need for this you know, rapid breakthrough in uh, computing power and in, um, yeah, in, in code breaking. Like, Enigma was a combination of you know, years and years of mathematicians pouring over stuff and also finding yeah, fundamental flaws in the way that the uh, algorithms worked, um, which was... Yeah, it was, and the um, the the uh, Nazis hadn't really figured that this this was breakable. They'd assumed it would be unbreakable, and so as as a, as a result of this na naivety of you know how hard um, the um, British and others would be trying to break this, um, probably lost them in the war. I mean, the example of a flaw in Enigma was they would never ever encrypt the letter A back to the letter A, and that actually made a massive mathematical weakness, which um, was one of the things that Turing was able to exploit. I mean, alone, it just reduces the number of possibilities you have by a factor of, well, order of magnitude, which is massive in terms of encryption. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's strange because it seems like a good idea on the face of it. You never want to make the same word going in, but the same word coming out. But in any even slightly interesting crypto system, um, that doesn't, isn't a practical problem. So, um, yeah, it's, I guess, another case of people being too clever for their own good. And this sort of idea of encryption was... I was going to say written well, but both me and Will have a sort of love-hate with Neil Stevenson, but he wrote a book called The Cryptonomicon, which is I say, a fictional book about encryption technology in World War II and their future descendants. Yeah, it's, um, it has a combination of um, um, historical characters such as um, Alan Turing himself and fictional characters uh, working alongside them. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's kind of a study of code-breaking ac across the 20th century. Um, Influenced by real events, but um, not entirely factual. So it's 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 a, ni it's a nice kind of loving homage by Neil Stevenson into these these technologies that he's really interested in. Um, he kind of goes on a bit though. Um, I mean, yeah, if you know the basics of encryption, he will sometimes spell it out for you again in absolutely painstaking way, which I'm not sure would even explain to people who didn't know. That's probably why we dislike him. Is he goes on about the length of your key cipher keys in your RSA encryption, but. If you don't know what RSA encryption is, I'm not so sure how much you'll care about the length of the cipher key, but there's a lot of good stuff in there, and the point he's actually trying to make in that piece is that the character is so paranoid that he's looking to try and make an encryption which will last over 50 years. Or, well, last over his lifetime, I think, was what he was aiming for. So he puts a massive amount of resources into encrypting the stuff. Uh, but, of course, he's making assumptions that where technology will go. Yeah. Um, 
it's, I guess it's kind of hard to say much more on that without giving things away. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty good read. It's quite, it's, it's quite chunky. It's about 500 pages. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of Stevenson's better works. So Cryptonomicon, if you're interested, uh, check it out. Okay, and we'll um, catch up with you after this next track. Online and across Cambridge. Your station, your Cam FM. 
Hi, welcome back. You're listening to uh, The Science of Fiction with uh, Andy Holding and Will Thompson. That was 35 Ghosts 4, um, not a very memorable song title by Nine Inch Nails from the 2008 album Ghosts. But if you recognised it, that's because it was kind of tweaked a bit and renamed to A Familiar Taste, and it was used in the soundtrack for The Social Network, uh, which I'm sure many people have seen. And it's a pretty... Um, yeah, good example of computers in, fi- computers in fiction, but not as, you know, someone with a huge beard typing a lot. It's kind of funny, because the, the soundtrack to that film won Best Original Soundtrack, but quite a few tracks in the soundtrack have been released three years before, so I'm not really sure if that counts. But apparently it did. Who knows? I don't know, maybe it's the whole soundtrack as a whole is original. And it's the same composers. So um, it was, you know, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who, who then performed under their real names, as opposed to some kind of Nine Inch Nails brand. So it's probably okay. But yeah, I think if if you haven't seen The Social Network, um, the concept of a film about Facebook doesn't really sound like compelling viewing, but um, it definitely works. It's um, it focuses a lot on, on on these people as you know human beings. They're flawed. Um, they get up some get up some crazy stunts, and um, it's a, a play on you know, this is it's a social network, but is it actually very good at you know building real life social interactions? I mean, I think it's helped by the fact that Zuckerberg is a really strange person in real life. I mean, maybe stranger in word, but he's certainly a character, and that helps the movie a lot because it's not just a person sitting in his garage. But even so, there are good movies about techie people sitting in their garage. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a movie about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates called The Silicon pa- Pirates Silicon Valley. And uh, I've heard good reviews about that. I haven't actually seen it because I don't think it's released in the UK, but I'm sure you can get a copy. Yeah, and there's, there, there are a few films about... Um, there's a couple of films about the uh, about the sudden rise of open-source software. I think it's called... The, one of them is called The Accidental Revolutionary. Um, it's about Linus Torvalds and related, like, linux people. Is uh, Richard Stallman in it? Uh, possibly. I, don't, I, I haven't seen it. I've, I'm, I, I've told, I, I'm told good things about it. Um, there was also, on the sort of less serious end of the spectrum, there was a film called Antitrust, which was sort of ostensibly slightly about, um, you know... Microsoft versus Netscape and the open source movement, but actually uh, the Microsoft analog in the film turns out to be killing open source programmers. Which well, the pretty- Microsoft analog also says he makes a joke about not being Microsoft. I think just to stop anyone accidentally making that assumption. Yeah. Um, so it's. I don't know. It's it's um, not a great film, but it's entertaining. Um, someone just uh, texted in to point out that um, the social network does help. It's, it's helped that Aaron, it's an Aaron, Sor- Aaron Sorkin film. It's not just any any old person um, writing this. I mean, I have the same feeling about um, computer games we made into movies. Most of them are absolutely awful, not because the computer game necessarily is a bad thing to spawn a plot from, but just because they seem to hand it to awful directors, and they just seem to just—it's they're just cash-ins. That's true, and and I can't think of a good movie made from a computer game, mind you, but I'm sure there's one out there which I probably don't think of as a computer game car movie. Well, if I guess listeners, if you can think of a good computer game which be- became a movie which was actually good, then you should you should write in. Mario Brothers doesn't count. <laughs> but um, alongside being about you know real people doing real things, one of the nice things in the Social Network is that when they do show Mark Zuckerberg. Um, "Quote unquote," hacking his college dorms to get the photographs of everyone and put them on the internet. He's actually using real tools and writing using real Unix tools. But they had they went to the lengths of using the versions which were current at the time he was actually doing it. So that was you know really amazing attention to detail, um, and it contrasts kind of 
entertainingly with films like Swordfish, which someone wrote in to say is the um, should probably win the prize for the most ridiculous hacking scene, where there's this guy sitting in a swivel chair, just drinking bottles of wine and moving spinning cubes around on his nine computer screens. That's not what hacking looks like, in case anyone thought it was. Um, and someone's also written in, in fact it is Kim Holding has written in. To I, I recognise that name. Yeah, um, to, to talk about Trinity at the start of The Matrix, uh, who's um, trying to hack into computers that isn't actually proper hacking. That's, a, that's actually a good example of a halfway house, because she's using a real tool, uh, but it isn't doing what she said it would do. Um, the same thing, so she's using Nmap, which kind of became the canonical someone is hacking um, tool for quite a few years to come. Um, and recently, I guess Tron Legacy, which I didn't see, but I'm told it's really great, despite being a Tron film. Um, I quite like the original. I haven't seen that one either. I'm, I, know, I know this is heresy. So how, how can you say you do, Oh, I'm not going to go there. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm just making snap judgments based on absolutely no knowledge. But Tron Legacy showed um, some, like, you know, computery stuff happening. But they used uh, Emacs, which is a, like, nerd's text editor. Uh, so it, it, was a re- it was real software running. It wasn't doing what they said it would do. But, you know, better than nothing, maybe. We, ju- we just got in uh, some feedback saying Mortal Kombat, which I assume was meant to be a good movie made from a computer game. I haven't actually seen that movie. I, I is, it, is it is it good as in a good film, or is it good as in a really really entertaining film? Yeah, I mean, I I quite enjoy the Street Fighter movie, which I also haven't seen. That that's a John Claude Van Damme movie, I think. That, okay, well, that, again, that helps, right? That that tells you everything you need to know about it. But it's not good. Um, but yeah, I actually haven't seen Mortal Kombat. I've got a feeling they made more than one movie. Quite possibly. Listener who has seen at least one of the Mortal Kombat films, write in and tell us all the stuff that we're ignorant of and should be... Well, we could try and do a Rotten Tomato search in a moment to see what reviews it got. Absolutely. Okay, so we'll leave you after that discussion with the next track. Sorry, just got to put the fader up.
on air, online and across Cambridge. Your station, your Cam FM. Hi, this is The Science of Fiction and I'm Andrew Holding and I am joined by Will Thompson. And that song was I Have the Password to Your Shell Account by Barcelona. I think from the chorus it may have been obvious what the title of that song was. Yeah, I, if you missed that, I'm, it was I Have a Password to Your Shell Account. Um, the, um, so that, was kind of, it's, uh, that kind of works nicely with this track earlier by MC Frontalot because this is the other way that people actually hack people's accounts. Like when someone talks about you know, hacking Sarah Palin's email, they didn't hack her email, they guessed her password, it was her mum's name or something. And I also think this is true of the um, current phone hacking scandal where all the phones that have been hacked are basically their four-digit codes or something, so they just send some poor intern to type it in at 999. 9,999 times, but that wouldn't take you very long. Well, yeah, it doesn't take you very long if you can pay people minimum wage or less to just type some numbers into their phone. Um, of course, the mobile network probably should have noticed that someone was trying every single code. But, you know, um, someone sent in a comment that um, CSI has a great sequence where uh, the um, where someone creates a GUI interface using Visual Basic. So, yeah, we'll just play this for you. Weeks I've been investigating the cabbie killer murders with a certain morbid fascination. This is in real time. I'll create a GUI interface using Visual Basic. See if I can track an IP address. So yeah, that's an example of bad computers. You want to explain that to our listeners? Well, it's not intrinsically like, completely wrong. Visual Basic is a programming language. A GUI interface is a graphical user interface interface. Um, like you might do that, but. It's. I mean, all, all the words are words, but it doesn't really make any sense in the context. Like, if it. it I mean, we we get all your IP addresses when you send in comments. We don't use them for anything other than just. I think in case you did do something nasty to our system, we'd know. Yeah, the person who sent in that CSI comment, uh, uh, their IP address is one three one. So you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't have names for you, but we know who you are. Yeah, you, if you actually, that's a real, really good point. If you could put your name on the comments, it's great because we like to give you credit for bringing them in, especially things like that, which we then play out on air. Uh, and we, yeah, we've had um, some more comments about Mortal Kombat. But apparently, the first movie's okay if you like Bruce Lee style stuff. And um, yeah, but the other movies are terrible, so don't watch them. Okay, uh, if, and if you, apparently, yeah, I, I'm not really a big Bruce Lee person, so I think I'll probably give that a miss. Um, I guess another recent book and film with you know a hacker was uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Recent film, old book. Fair point. Um, recently popular, maybe. Yes. But, um, yeah, so there was this character of Lisbeth Salander. So there's the advantage that this is, this is a popular depiction of a like, computer, computer expert who's a woman, which is good because we don't have... Like, it's, it's an endemic problem in computing that it's, like, there's a lot of men and women don't get the credit they should get. But on the downside, um, it's kind of reinforcing a lot of stereotypes. She's a goth, she's kind of on the autism spectrum and she sort of stays, stares at a screen in a darkened room you know, long into the night. Um, which, you know, sure, there are people who do that. That's fine, you know. Um, so it's, you know, a, a realistic depiction, at least. Realistic, but well, not the norm. Realistic. Stereotype. Quote-unquote. Realistic, you know. It could be worse. Yeah, so the comment of the director who does game-to-film movies, uh, we just, somebody just reminded me, is Yui Bol, uh, who is awful. <laughs> and slightly insane. Uh, the, uh, yes, so we're not going to read your IP address out. I'm sure people have had enough numbers in their lives. We all have too many numbers. So, yeah, I think I think the goth hacker thing is actually something which comes up a lot as well, because in The Matrix, of course, at the beginning of the first movie, is that Keanu Reeves is friends with a load of goths who seem to be trading MP3s like drugs or something. There are actually... Um, some people have, have uh, glued... 
USB sticks into walls in like random public spaces around the USA. And the idea is you're supposed to take your laptop to this public space and kind of connect it to the wall and put some data onto this USB stick and take some data off. And this is supposed to be, I mean, it's, I think it's an art project, but it's kind of interesting. You're just going to plug your laptop in and you don't know what you're going to get. Is it going to be a great song? Is it going to be porn? Or is it going to be a virus? You better use protection. Uh, it does sound very similar to geocaching, which um, is this idea that you just give them a GPS location for somewhere to go and find a cache, and you take one item out of it and put another item in. Which is, I guess, not dissimilar to a time capsule, except without the burying it under the ground for 100 years. And it's just an excuse to go off a trek randomly into the wilderness. And for people who have GPSs that they don't know what to do with. Well, that's basically, it was geeks with GPSs how it started, but they um, still do it, so it's, it's not just for geeks now. Anyone can do it, anyone can join in. And um, I think that moves us on to our next track, which I am very much looking forward to. Code monkey, get up, get coffee. Code monkey, go to job. Code monkey, have boring meeting with boring manager Rob. Rob say, Code monkey, very diligent, but his output stink. His code not functional or elegant. What do Code Monkey think? Code Monkey think maybe manager wanna write goddamn login page himself. Code Monkey not say it out loud. Code Monkey not crazy, just proud. Code Monkey likes Fritos. Code Monkey likes Tavern Mountain Dew. Code Monkey very simple man with big warm fuzzy secret heart. Code Monkey like. Monkey have long walk back to cubicle. He sit down, pretend to work. Code monkey not thinking so straight. Code monkey not feeling so great. Code monkey like Fritos. Code monkey like Tavern Mountain Dew. Code monkey very simple man. Big warm fuzzy secret heart. Code monkey like you. Monkey thinks someday he have everything, even pretty girl like you. Code monkey just waiting for now. Code monkey says someday, somehow. Code monkey like Fritos. Code monkey like Tavern Mountain Dew. Code monkey very simple man. Big warm fuzzy secret heart. Code monkey like you. Like you. 
across Cambridge. Your station, your Cam FM. That was Jonathan Coulton with Code Monkey. And um, yeah, I, the reason I look forward to that so much is I know his material from a game called Portal, which has been in the news recently because the sequel was released in the last month. Yep, I'm, I'm imagining a lot of people are, maybe have been playing it today. I know I was. I suspect the people listening to a radio show about computers will probably have played computer games. Yeah, so yeah, Jonathan Coulton composed the um, song over the ending credits of the first Portal game, um, which is probably how people, how people know him. He's a, you know, but that was, that was not really a song about fiction. It was a song about the day-to-day life of a simple-minded programmer. Um, sort of following on from something we were talking about briefly earlier, one of the nice things about Portal is that it's kind of an an almost accidental example of a game where there's only two characters, and one of them is, um, well, there's, there's a human character and a robot character, and so once again we have, you know, this morally ambiguous robot, um, um, but we have this morally ambiguous woman robot, and the protagonist is also a woman, and there are no other characters. A psychotic female robot. There is that. But yeah, it was just kind of a, yeah, it's, it, it, didn't, it, didn't make a, it didn't make a big deal of it, which was nice. Yeah, I mean, it's... An, the only reason I think you even realise you're a girl is there's the odd mirror you can look in. Other than that, I don't think it ever states your name anywhere. There's a scene at the very beginning of the game where uh, it's designed to let you see yourself, partly because there's stuff strapped to your feet, which means you can fall forever and uh, not Bounce. be hurt when you hit the ground. Um, but, uh, yeah, it has the side effect of you can, you can, you can see yourself... You're forced to see yourself exactly once. And you can see yourself later if you try hard enough, but... Yeah, because using portals. Yeah, but otherwise you're, you're just this kind of anonymous character. I mean, I, I've, I thought that was a great example of a really good computer game. Just in fact, it had a really quirky sense of humour with the computer. The um, GLaDOS, which is this psychotic female computer. Um, it's just really funny. The, the the writing was great. It was kind of it was a great example of the kind, the kind of um, game that's been having resurgence recently. Of you know they're they're, they're bite sized. You can play them in an evening. Um, they're 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 funny. They're quirky and. They don't try to be epic. They have one idea and they execute it well. Yeah, I think that's something that computer games have lost recently is the idea that you can have good script writing over... Well, it's, as I say, it's, it's a resurgence of it now, but the idea is good script writing over big special effects. Similar to what you see in movies, sort of a, there's been a lot of small art house movies doing a lot better recently. Though, with the UK Films Council losing its funding, that might sadly go away. Yeah, which would be a, which would be a shame. Though then there are arguments that UK Films Council has had its own problems, so we'll have to be have to see what happens there. Can't predict the future. Well, and and it'll be that there's enough other things being cut. That's kind of there's an argument that almost anything that's being cut, you can say, well, you know, would you rather have you know this instead of you know incubators for babies, and we can get into some kind of horrible no to AV star campaigning, and it all just goes downhill from there. Yeah, so we don't really know what we're talking about on that, so <laughs> this is a science show. Um, yeah, well, we've not got much left of the show, so we're going to push on forward, I think, because we really, really want you to um, just hear the last track we've got for you this evening. And, um, yeah, hope you enjoy this one. These days, the letter's like a freeze Xerox of our sheets bound back. Of 
buying a package book, uh, on which there have been 5,000 copies printed. You will go to the telephone, describe your interests, your needs, to your problems, and they said, it'll be right over. And they at once Xerox, with the help of computers from the libraries of the world, all the latest material just for you personally. Not as something to be put out on, uh, on the bookshelf. They sent you the package as a direct personal service. This is where we're headed under electronic information conditions. That was bookend by Faded Paper Figures, and that was mostly about the effects of e-readers will have on real life. Yeah, that was... Um, it's kind of not really about... Uh, yeah, computers in fiction. It's computers and acting on fiction. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting because... They're wondering whether it will destroy the social aspects of fiction, and I don't really think it will. Um, but um, one interesting kind of side effect of like ebook readers is that um, Amazon once remotely killed a copy of 1984 from people's Kindles, apparently not having any knowledge of how ironic it would be to pick that book to delete remotely. Right. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for today. But it's been great having you here, and I hope you enjoy the show. <laughs>